Welcome to Wildly Tarot Summer Camp! Yay! I'm Holly. And I'm Esther. And this summer, we are going to do introductory episodes so that everyone can get on the same page, (laughs) slash learn about things, and we can do our actual daytime jobs that are crazy during the summer without having to record every week. (laughs) Yes, yes. And we also are able to, like, share the info of knowledge, like, that where we have grown through the years, because while we have done sort of intro-ish episodes, it's not going to be as concentrated as these will be so I was re-listening to our Lenormand uh intro episodes and I'm like oh my gosh we have no idea how no. important Lenormand would come become <laughs> to be for us I know so we have a whole series of intro twos as well as some really fun reading exercises planned for the next couple of weeks this is our intro to tarot episode as you would know if you read the course title <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to just, we just decided we're going to try to make this summer camp themed. So yeah. who knows how that'll come through, but we're super excited to talk about tarot. Yeah. Cause <laughs> like everyone's favorite week, usually is summer camp week. So you're going to get lots of summer camp weeks from us. Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, this week we're talking about tarot and we just wrote a book about the art history of tarot. So we actually feel pretty confident in our tarot history. Hey, like we we dug in so deep. We read translated works from the 18th century. (laughs) Like we feel confident about our intro to tarot history at this point. A large part of that is that there is so much falsehood about the beginnings of tarot that just everyone kind of says because it is so. Like mysterious it's not actually mysterious but there was a concerted effort in the 18th century to make it mysterious yes so that clouds the actual history and kind of like puts on these fake lore narratives so we're not just going to talk about the history of tarot we're also going to talk about some myths surrounding acquisition of tarot decks how to read tarot how we read tarot um just sort of from start to finish go through what it all means but just to jump off. Yeah. We'll talk about the history. Yeah. And I feel a sneeze coming on. So That's I'm okay. going to try to contain that. Okay. <laughs> don't contain it. Let it go. <laughs> ah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to. So where do we want to start with the history of tarot? Do we think that starting with the Visconti family is the way to go? I think maybe just starting from the fact that there were always some sort of like card playing deck in the world that eventually made its way to Italy. And from there, tarot, the tarot game that we know started everything was created. Yeah. So initially a lot of the playing card style that tarot grew from was created in Egypt and it was brought to Italy via traders, but it's only the same style and that there are four suits. Yes. So that, then therefore means that that style of card is the precursor to both modern playing cards and also modern tarot cards. Yes. So it's really suit related. So when you hear people say it came from Egypt, it came from semi-modern, like medieval, like Western medieval era Egypt. I don't know what era that was in Egypt, right, but right. I, they call them the Maluk dynasty. So it's some sort of 13th century Egyptian dynasty and they were the first ones to create these like four card suit decks and through trade brought them to Italy. Eventually though that four suit deck turned into 
tarot also. Yes. And I think that 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 connection is what led the 18th century philosophizers and esoterists into feeling more committed to claiming the, these ancient mysterious Egyptian roots. Yes. Yes, definitely. Which is the fake lore stuff. It is not ancient. It is semi-modern. If you think about it, when was paper like really a huge thing? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> not till much later than ancient Egypt. Um, and how would we still be able to maintain that paper? I know you're like ephemera just doesn't last. That's the whole point of ephemera. Especially when the fake lore like says that it's from like ancient Egypt and that's when papyrus was used and there are they making cards with papyrus. There's not those papyri ever discovered. So yeah, exactly. Well, and even the old Visconti cards, the reason, and we'll talk about this next week when we do a Visconti review, because that is the first chapter of our book also. The Visconti cards, the reason that we have them is not because they were maintained as decks of cards so well for so many years. The reasons we have them still are that they were used as bookbinding and like found deep in people's desks and stuff. And they were such beautiful gold leaved cards that people were not using them that often. But even as tarot readers ourselves, we know that we destroy decks like crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's just supposed to use. happen. Like I'm, yeah, exactly. like, I'm sorry for those who think that their first tarot deck will be with them forever. It's not going to be. It might be, not- <laughs> but man, that'll look pretty, pretty wild yeah. after a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be using it, it is going to wear out. And that's, I mean, I think worn out decks are beautiful, but we have yeah. to realize that they're not going to stay pristine or perfect because that's just not the way paper yeah, works. Yeah, that's not how paper works. Exactly. So anyway, after the, it was sort of transformed into this playing card game, um, which related to sort of one upping based on numbers. And then the Trump cards, which we call the major arcana in the mm-hmm. modern era were sort of used as part of the storytelling component of the game. So there are a lot of variations about how people played tarot, but even through the tarot de Marseille era, mm-hmm. which was in the like 1700s. 1700s yeah. Uh, they, those cards were not being used for divinatory reasons in a mainstream way. There may have been some people who were starting to use them in divinatory ways, but any documentation about that is just through these sort of like showman esoterists of the late 18th century. Yes. Um, so for the most part, it was just used for a playing card game and you can still find that in most of France and a lot of sort of like central and southern europe the actual playing card game is still totally played yeah yeah um so like with anything i mean people are always looking for looking for ways to use things in interesting ways i mean any card game eventually will turn people into try to use those cards for something drinking games mostly but occasionally divination (laughs) um (laughs) There were several people in the late 18th century who wrote extensively about the use of uh, tarot cards for divination means. Yes. And all of them said, had these like kind of like, ooh, a mysterious old Romani woman told us that they X, Y, Z. And that's where a lot of the controversy surrounding tarot as a closed practice, which some of you may have heard about, comes into play. Yes. And we've been asked about this a couple of times, but we always felt a little bit strange about addressing it because we didn't want to step on any toes about like our like fellow tarot readers who are Romani, who you know, have 
complicated feelings about it. But ultimately, over the last year, there's been a lot of discourse about this. And ultimately, the things that we've seen and heard from our friends who are Romani is that there's no way that you as a tarot reader right now, who's just picking it up on their own using our current resources, could be reading in the Romani way. So yes. it is not closed in that way. Yes. We're using tools that are also used for a closed practice, but there's no way that we are participating in the closed practice yes. because we're not being trained in the same way that Romani card readers yes. are. Yes. The, the meanings are completely different for their cultural context than what we have adapted from this method over millennia. Yeah, essentially well, well half a millennia not yeah exactly <laughs> half a millennia <laughs> hundreds of years hundreds of years <laughs> so I do think that that's like a really interesting conversation but I do feel like it's also important to mention it specifically because there are a lot of sort of like like kind of TikTok tarot people who can get kind of in the weeds about whether yes. or not it's allowed and so mentioning that there are, of course, like with any group of people, there are going to be a wide variety of opinions about their cultural, uh, you know, heritage experiences oh, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it seems like there is many more people that we have found who think that there is no way that people who are reading tarot could be doing it the Romani way. And therefore, it's not problematic. Yes. Then there are people who say that the entire set of tools is. Yes. Um, so it's good to keep in mind, but don't stress out too much about it. Right. Yes. And then there's this whole period where people are basically only using the early 20th century decks, Rider Waite Smith and yes. Toth, but mostly Rider Waite Smith because that came out in the early, early, early 20th century. Yes. Um, and uh, Arthur Waite and Pixie Coleman Smith kind of like created this deck together, although. Pixie's only gotten a lot of credit in the last 25 years for it, maybe 30 years maybe, for all yeah. of her contribution. So we do have a whole chapter about the Rider-Waite-Smith deck in which we primarily focus on Pixie. Yes. Um, and it's basically like a love letter to her, yeah, I think. I think so. Just just <laughs> like Toth is for Frida it. Harris, it's, it's yeah. a love letter for her. Exactly. Our chapter on the writer Wade Smith is a love letter for Pixie. So Right. And we have a couple of episode episodes specifically about Pixie. We did a review of the biography that was written um, by Stuart Kaplan and a couple of other people about her. Uh, and then we also talk about her a little bit when we review RWS decks uh, mm-hmm. and the, uh, what is that Lenormand deck called? That's oh, using the, all um, her. Pixie's Astonishing yeah, Lenormand. Yeah. We talk about her a little bit there too. But if you want to really feel our love for her, you'll definitely get that through our book chapter. About yes, her, where totally. We're basically like, fangirling the whole time (laughs) yeah the sweet sweet pixie because the thing about her is that she was really young when she was creating the tarot deck with arthur Waite. yes and her success did not last yeah and it's really touching and heartbreaking to see somebody who we have been impacted so much as by as tarot readers Mm -hmm. sort of like fall into obscurity and also in some ways become bitter, which is such yeah. an unflattering thing that we don't like to see women turn into these bitter old women, but it also makes a, so much sense in yeah. her context. Like oh, totally. she had these beautiful salons where people would write these gorgeous notes to her and like give her so Very much famous love. people. Yeah. Famous, famous people. And they'd all, it was all in books. And at one point she just was like, I hate everybody. Literally. I hate uh-huh. everybody. 
have this book and she just gave it to an acquaintance. Yeah. And there are all these. So anyway, it's just a really interesting thing. We talk about her a lot in that chapter, just how much we love her. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a really long time, that was the deck that most people were using. When that deck was created, Aleister Crowley, the wickedest man in the world, using heavy air quotes because he's mostly just like a scam artist scumbag. Edge but... Lord, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he has really important metaphysical things yeah. that he did, he but he also yeah. kind of abused people in his life a lot. Yeah. Yeah. One of those people is the woman that he paid to illustrate no, the Toth Tarot. No, he did not pay. She paid him. She paid him Yeah, the she project. paid him the entire time because she was a rich lady. He kept asking for money. She really believed in him and yeah. believed in his efforts. So she did the entire deck, which made me like Toth a whole lot more. But yeah, we'll totally. also be talking about Toth in a future episode during summer camp. Um, but those two decks came out in the first half of the 20th century. And then there's like a little bit of a gap where there weren't any, weren't really many new decks. And then starting in the 60s and sort of the, I guess, technically the late 60s, early 70s, Mm -hmm. there's this huge explosion of tarot deck creation that happens in the later half of the 20th century. We have Aquarian Tarot. We have Morgan Greer. There's all these sort of indie decks. I think it kind of aligns with, um, I guess, like indie bookstores. But what are uh-huh. like the radical indie bookstores? I guess right. just radical indie bookstores. The more that there are like radical indie bookstores, the more there are indie decks that are being created in small markets throughout those areas. Yeah. So there were a couple of mainstream publishers. The main one is U.S. Games at that time period where they were buying smaller markets of tarot decks and then creating them for a national audience. Mm -hmm. Um, But the real huge explosion happened in the 2010s. Yes. Where in the last 10 years, there's like, you know, 400 new decks Every year. month or yeah. more every month. I, mean, I feel like every non-stop. month on Kickstarter. It's on Kickstarter every month. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's sort of a like a of summarization of the history of how we got to modern day tarot, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And you should buy pre-order our book slash buy our book for more <laughs> thoughts about it with actual like names and dates. <laughs> exactly. Just like a brief overview. Vague, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about how to acquire a deck because this is probably one of the first yeah. myths that people run across when they're thinking about getting into tarot. Yeah. And I think with the like modern day, this whole like gatekeeping is kind of going away with this area. Yeah. But there's like Especially other the last gatekeeping two years. popping up. Yeah, exactly. So it's like while this this portion is being done away with, other gatekeeping kind of pops up to take its place. But at least acquiring a deck from, you know, usually mm-hmm. isn't gatekept as much as it used to be. Right. So you may hear that in order to get your first deck, you have to have it given to you or you have to steal it. Yes. Both of those things are not at all true. Yes. That might be the case in some spiritual paths where in that spiritual path, having it gifted to you or stolen is the only way to do it. That is not mainstream tarot. Yes. That is like specifically within the Romani traditions we were talking about earlier. It has to be given to you by your teacher. Yes. So that's kind of where that myth starts. Yes. Uh, Or not myth. That. Idea practice yeah. yeah yeah that practice and it came starts. from the protection of that people group itself because right because romani have been yeah persecuted for a thousand years for being perceived as others and especially that sort of mysticism stuff has been really really threatening to a lot of 
people. And so yes. that it makes sense that they would want a tradition within their their group to have it be something that is more tightly controlled. Yes. If you are not practicing Romani tarot, which as we discussed before, there is very little chance that you are unless you're actually like actually Romani. Right. You don't have to follow that tradition because you don't have that same cultural context of needing it to be a straight line between teacher and student. Yes. Um. So as somebody who is practicing just regular tarot, standard, whatever, um, I guess standard feels weird to say, but just like non Romani tarot. Right. You can go anywhere to get it. You can yeah. even go to Barnes and Noble. You can get one online. They're everywhere. Yes. Sometimes they have them at like five below type stores. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but they are so easy to find. And the key is finding one that you like the art for. Mm-hmm. And when we first started the podcast, I think our default suggestion was the Radiant Rider Waite deck. Because yes, I think so. It is really pretty. And the book that comes with it, if you get the set, I think is one of the most helpful beginner tarot mm-hmm. books that exists in the world. But if you don't connect with Rider Waite Smith, don't get mm-hmm. it. You're not going to get exactly. as much out of it. Right. Because we know, as we've talked in different episodes before, especially for those who come out of spiritually abusive Christian communities, like uh-huh. the judgment card will be kind of triggering the hierophant card, maybe yeah. kind of triggering. And so if that would be too much for you, you may want to try a more modern deck a that cat has deck cat or deck or like whatever. fifth spirit tarot that has more inclusivity or numinous tarot that has yeah. more diversity and stuff like that. So it may be something where for you that would be it more like appealing and helpful for you to be able to connect with. Yeah. Because that's really the key is not just using whatever deck other people tell you to do, but using a deck that you connect with because the whole key to learning tarot is using it regularly. Mm -hmm. And if you are turned off by imagery or whatever, then that's not going to be something that you go to as regularly as totally. If it was something that you felt really connected to. Yeah. I mean, if you don't like the pictures on something and you don't want to look at them, then what's the point? Right. If you're not enjoying it, then what's the point? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So when you get your first deck, whether it's through Etsy, through an like in-person witchy shop or an in-person bookstore or Amazon or whatever, when you get your first deck, almost all of them are going to have 78 cards and a little white book. That's what the abbreviation is L no LWB. I was like, like, please don't fuck up little white book. I know it's only three letters. I almost <laughs> fucked it up. Uh, but you'll most decks have a LWB. Yes. Some of them won't. Some of them will have really beefy L- yes. LWBs. We still call them LWBs. Yes. It's just like part of it. The companion in- book is always going to be an LWB. Exactly. Unless it's a standalone, like if it's the same size as the deck, then we refer to it as an LWB. If it's way bigger than the deck, then it doesn't feel as Yeah, kind of like a guidebook is probably what we would label that more. Yeah. But still like just even then it's like, oh, the general term is still LWB. It's been around since the 70s, I think. Is that what we pinpointed? I think so because it's very associated with the U.S. Games decks, which always come with a white fold out paper with just very brief exactly yeah I think so and now they want to include more a lot of artists want to include more information and so they have bigger ones but that's always or almost always included if it isn't included in the deck usually there will be something on the artist's or creator's website where they're like here's what I would use for my definition yeah then you can utilize that resource yeah 
totally. Or just type in the card and then meaning beside it in Google. Yeah, and exactly. Tons of stuff will come up. <laughs> a lot of decks follow the Rider Waite Smith path. Yes. So that makes it easier because then you can use the same books for most of your decks. Mm-hmm. Um, the structure of the deck itself is 22 major arcana cards that follow the fool's journey from zero, which is the fool to the world, which is card number 21. So if you're somebody who's into numerology, you can use numerology to kind of like uh, feed into your major arcana understanding and assessment. Um, But basically the whole journey is about like uh, starting something, creating something, learning something, having something go wrong, getting back on your feet and then ultimately accomplishing goals. And it's a very, very, very simplified version of the fool's journey. Um, But it is crucial that part of that is shit getting fucked up right in the middle. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And I think the fool's journey did not come out until like this, the mid seventies from Eden Gray. I believe when she wrote that book, that was sort of like a revelation for everybody. So this, so if you don't connect with the fool's journey, that's totally fine. This is kind of relatively right. You don't have to, but it helps with the association and where you are along a pathway. Right. And it also adheres closely with the hero's journey, which is a way older concept. So that's where you can also kind of like dive into it is just from this concept of the hero's journey where there's always a lot of enthusiasm, a little bit of success, a downfall, then like then kind of pulling yourself back up and succeeding. Yes, exactly. The hero's journey that's been around since Odysseus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or longer. Yeah, Uh, that's just my frame of (laughs) reference for it. So that is kind of like the major arcana. The minor arcana are split into four suits. These are the most common titles for them. Pentacles. Yes. Swords. Yes. Wands yes. and cups. You did great. I know. First try. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't talk about this all the time. I know. It's I know. So like, eh, what oh, way do we want to go in? Yeah. <laughs> so, Esther, do we want to talk about some of the components of each of those, or do we want to talk about numbering them first? Um, I think that the elemental associations has been what I've always defaulted to and helps me the most. Okay. So, typically, wands are associated with fire. Mm-hmm. Fire passionate creative projects yes um swords are associated typically depending on who your teacher is so this is my association (laughs) and the one that makes sense to me but swords are typically air and Uh associated with the intellect and like problem solving i think kind of fits in that general yeah totally Um, let's see, what was it? Or Cups. overthinking. Overthinking. If you're an overthinking kind yeah. of person. Anxiety, <laughs> panic, you know. That's yeah, the exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, cups are water, so they are associated with um emotions, joy, like any sort of like on the scale of emotions. Like you get yeah. like despair all the way to exuberance. Like that's kind yeah. of emo- the cups. <laughs> What? Look at you go. I know. Exuberance. <laughs> it's, okay. It's this cup of coffee. I know. I'm so amazed. <laughs> That's like a Some days Esther loses English to the point of not even being able to come up no, with simple exactly. concepts. And some days she just busts out with exuberance. <laughs> exuberance. Um, and then the last suit is pentacles. And that's usually either like, um, that's associated with the earth element. And mm-hmm. it's, I think of it typically either as like bodily things uh-huh. work slash business opportunities or for me i often have home stuff home, in there true, too yeah. anything that's sort of like 
touchable. Yeah. Yeah. Touchable. <laughs> Anything you can put your hands on yeah. or press your body against is pentacles. Is pentacles. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah. So, so those are, that's kind of the foundational element stuff. Yeah. And there are so many more correspondences totally. that go with all of these things that we just don't have time to go into. And also that are not as universally agreed upon. So yes. if you're interested in exploring more of the elemental stuff, adding in some astrological stuff, there yeah. are definitely resources for you to do that if you search around for them. But we mm-hmm. will not get into them today. Yeah. It's too much information. <laughs> it's just a lot. Yeah, exactly. This is supposed to be approachable. So if we start to getting too in the in the weeds, it could be it could be a little tricky. dangerous for you and exactly us. <laughs> exactly uh so the minor arcana are all numbered between ace and ten and then there are always the court cards yes for each of the suits so there are four court cards and typically they are named page knight queen and king I almost said princess, which is hilarious because <laughs> that toth. is Paige and Toth. And yeah. Toth, yeah. So <laughs> it's just so funny. Okay. Um, it's because I'm getting too worried that I'm going to get something wrong. No, you're I'm fine. You're I'm a totally good. confident tarot reader. You are. <laughs> uh, and I'll just edit it out otherwise. <laughs> ex- yeah, exactly. So they follow along. If you like to read this way, I find it kind of helpful. It's a little bit more Tarot de Marseille style. Mm-hmm. They follow along with some of the concepts of the beginning of the major arcana too. So aces and the magician both are about kind of like new starts and kind of um, energy that is going to be something that can be projected out into the world. Then it goes through two, three, four, et cetera, all the way to 10. 10 is sort of the culmination of these pathways throughout these elements. So again, there's sometimes in some suits, even in Rider Wade Smith, a little bit of like a, try really hard, have something get difficult and then recoup and regenerate. And the Mm -hmm. tens are sort of the culminating of those feelings. So the tens aren't always super positive. For example, the 10 of swords is really showing somebody who is very exhausted and beat down and they have swords sticking out of their back. And so that's kind of like sort of some intellectual exhaustion versus something like the 10 of cups, which is really celebratory. But it always goes from, which is right there. It's right here Aww. in Morgan Greer. It was like at the bottom so, of my, oh, and the Ten of Swords is like, that's really weird. The Ten of <laughs> Wands is like right here underneath like the Ten of Cups. And we're talking about tens. See, this is what tarot does. It, it yeah, trolls us constantly. Like, what's happening here? <laughs> exactly. Um, so if you're like thinking about, you know, trying to get a better handle on these, sometimes just putting your deck back in order and going through each card one by one and the sequence of one through 10 or ace through 10 can be really helpful to remind yourself of like what each suit is trying to achieve. Yes. Yes. Um, And then with the court cards, the court cards are really, really tricky for people to learn. They were for us. Sometimes we still get frozen when we have a lot of court cards pop up where we're like, oh no, what's going on? I think a few episodes ago we had one reading where like all court cards It was all court cards. Yeah, exactly. And we're like, wonderful. (laughs) This is so perfect. What could go wrong? Yeah. Um, So the court cards thing is something that you'll want to spend time on. Yes. We really liked Ethany's reading the court cards book, which we'll link in the show notes, but I don't think it's the be all end all of court cards because there is often a overemphasis on specific personality traits within Mm -hmm. the court cards when you're learning how to do them. So a lot of exercises will be like, think of somebody who embodies the queen of cups. Yeah. 
That is a helpful exercise, but do not get super stuck on it. Yes. And don't have that be your entire understanding of a yes. court card. Yes. Um, like a sort of, what is it called? See, I lost my English. Didn't last forever. No. Um, <laughs> exuberance. Yeah, exuberance. <laughs> a sort of like story. So I was reading um, for someone, like a group of ladies, and one card came up for one person as the mother-in-law. Uh-huh. And so for the whole entire group, whenever this card would come up again, they'd be like, oh, my mother-in-law. You yeah. know, when it's not necessarily saying that, but they right. automatically associated it with someone's mother-in-law and, right. so and I, associate for themselves. And that's a really easy thing to fall into because the core cards don't necessarily come that easily to people that once right. you get it stuck in your head, it comes up that way forever. Like Esther and I have court cards associated with each other. Yeah. And, but we still have to be able to read those court cards as separate from each other when they come up in context where we're not discussing or not thinking about yes. like each other. Totally. So that's a helpful thing to keep in mind because I'm not always going to. And also we have other friends that also feel like the queens that we associate ourselves with. So it's not like it's always going to be the same thing, but it is helpful if you want to do that exercise of like who feels the most, whatever, like Mm -hmm. queen of pentacles. Um, I've heard people be like, oh, Oprah is the queen of pentacles. I think she's actually the king of pentacles. Yes. And feels so that's more the, accurate. It me. feels more accurate to me because she has so much power uh, mm-hmm. in the field of like business and home. And she's also more extroverted body. because the kings yeah. are usually a bit more extroverted than the queens right. themselves. So right, yeah. yeah so sense. sometimes people also, in addition to getting trapped with just one person, is that they get really stuck on the gender of each of these. Yes. Uh, each of these cards. So typically. And I actually let's say the vibes for each of the court okay. cards before we say which gender they typically are. Because right, you'll right. find that people do gender these really unnecessarily. But right. pages are brand new to something. They yes. don't have a lot of information. They have a spark of interest. They have some enthusiasm, but they're mostly just like, well, I don't know. Yeah, like they're novices. Kind of young. Yeah. They're yeah. total novices. Knights have a little bit more information, but also a lot more motivation. Yes. So in some cases, you'll see the knights just running, running off. Like right. the Knight of Swords is just unplanned, just chaotic. <laughs> yeah. The Knight of Pentacles is much more planned uh, and calm. So those are kind of the two extremes. But the knights have action oriented with them. They're yes. all going somewhere. And you'll see them usually, in, at least in traditional uh Rider Waite Smith cards, they are all on horses. Yes, yes. They're all in active movement. Yes. They also seem to be a bit more reckless with their energy, where it's like uncontained chaos. It, you know, even though the Knight of Pentacles is a bit more plain and methodical, there's still that edge of, you know, not having of, all yeah. the information yet, but right, having right, enough right. to be in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, and enthu- <laughs> I think that the enthusiasm is where that comes yes, out. Yes, I think that so. All of them are like, let's do this. Yes. Yes. Uh, the queens are more established and understanding, but also a little bit more internal. Like they know that trait, they know that uh, element, or they know those energies within themselves really yes. well. So yes. they have this information; it's all there, and they uh, are just sort of like all knowing. Not all knowing; they're very knowing oriented. Yes. And a lot of the times, you'll if you see alternate names for these cards. Knower is a pretty common one for queen. Yeah. Yeah. And then kings are leaders. So kings are associated with those traits of their suit, but kind of being external and uh, showing them to the world. Yes. Yes. 
yeah, more a lot more extroverted energy. They're like actually putting things into practice where the queen would be more internal thought process thinking yeah. things through, you know, being methodical. The king is actually kind of doing it in a mature way. And not saying the yeah. king's not, but he's like d- differentiating him from the knight because the knight right. is actively doing things, but there's They're like both a active sense of, cards. Yeah. But there's not a sense like with the knight, there's the knight doesn't have all the information yet. He has just enough to start this you know, action where, right. the, where the king has more information and yeah. does the thing really well. Right. And the capabilities are, the capability level is super high with the king. Yeah. Um. So yeah, those are kind of, and so then if you think about the fact that they're gendered, it means that both of the action oriented court cards are traditionally more masculine or male, whatever. Yeah. And then page and queen both have like more feminine energies. So people often associate them with women. Yeah. And I just like, that seems so reductive and that's something that we have been kind of rebelling against since we first started doing readings. But also it's just really helpful to keep in mind that when you're looking at other people's assessment of court cards, they might say, Oh, the page of cups, it's probably like a young blonde girl. Right. Right. And then your brain is like, okay, well, why do you think that? And it's just because the page of cups is sometimes historically associated with young blonde girls. Well, and it especially gets reductive when you think about, like, the RWS doesn't have any people of color in it in the court right, card, especially. Right, exactly. So yeah. it's, just, it's just ridiculous, in my opinion. So to me, it's, like, the energy that that court card has and fitting them with the, like, if, if there are a signifier for a person in your life, then matching that energy. But also but as not the we've, physical looks. Right, exactly. Not physical looks. And as we've discovered, there are sometimes physical like energies that we're being asked to contain within ourselves as we act into yeah, something. So totally. Totally. So yeah, if you feel trapped on the court cards, you're not alone. That's Definitely super not. normal. Just give yourself the like flexibility to actually read through a book that you trust or whatever. If you get to that and you feel stuck, if you don't have the capability to try to figure out the traits or whatever, uh, then don't hesitate to look, you know, yeah. that's totally fine. Yeah. I do think the thing that really broke it through for me though, was just instead of trying to think of specific traits about that card using like a diagram of like, okay, this is cups mm-hmm. and night right. cups are about emotions. Nights are about moving forward. So we're just saying moving forward with emotion or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. As you look at the cards surrounding it, you can kind of figure out specifically if that's positive or negative. Yeah. Yeah. Just using that sort of like graphing, like logical way to get there can be a really helpful way to break through any sort of like uh, blockages you're getting. Yes. Cards. Totally. I agree. All right. So now we're going to transition a little bit into actually reading tarot. Woohoo. (laughs) Hey. So there are a lot of people who have a lot of strong opinions about what you need to do before you read. So you may see a lot of things about like lighting candles, doing incense, meditating for an hour, you know, like only wrapping your decks in silk cloths. There are so many things that people feel really strongly about because it's either something they developed for themselves or something that they learned from a teacher. Yes. You can do Whatever makes you feel the most connected to your tarot reading. Yep. So for me, that's usually very brief grounding exercises. Uh, So typically before I do a reading, I just close my eyes. I take a couple of deep breaths and focus on my cards as they're in my hand. 
I like to envision my feet kind of like growing roots and extending to the ground because that helps me with literally feeling grounded. Or alternatively, I visualize like my third eye area, if you're following that sort of alignment, or I specifically just think about it as my forehead, my (laughs) forehead as a pulsing white light that as I breathe gets bigger and bigger and more receptive. Like it just sort of flashes brighter over and over again until I feel like, like a little bit more in my body. Yeah. What do you do to ground? Um, if I decide to ground just because sometimes, <laughs> well, like if you're sitting in bed and you're pulling cards, like, you know, yeah. you don't want to have a lit candle on your bedspread. That's no, dangerous. no, no. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I rarely light <laughs> yeah. candles. Well, and I'm even thinking that. like you, especially when you had a commute, you would pull cards in the car while I was so, driving. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So like sometimes, you know, there are some, I think. There are some days when there are readings that I want to do where I do want to have a sort of ritual of grounding and things like that. But there are other times where I just want to be casual and pull cards. So whatever kind of floats your boat. Usually I will pull candles. I will ask um, my guides to come and like, you know, usually when I'm doing a ritual like that, it's for me personally that I'm reading for or like an important situation if I'm doing a little ritual. Um so I'll ask them for help and guidance and things like that. I usually will do like a protection sort of grounding method. Mm. So like, you know, visualizing like a glittery bubble coming around me and protecting me while I'm doing things and doing that sort of visualization for myself. Yeah, totally. And then just start, you know, reading. So that's sort of my grounding-ness. The the sensory of like a smell really like helps helps ground me. So usually it's like um, a a form of incense that I do. Totally. I love that. But like you said, it kind of varies by the moment, (laughs) like what your goal is for the reading, how much time you have for it, et cetera. So that's a really important thing to note just because it can be easy to feel like it, you're not doing tarot readings, right? If you're not like taking it seriously enough, I'm using so many, (laughs) but as long as you feel ready to pull the cards or you feel like, I don't know, in a focused mindset, it doesn't have to be full-blown theatrical ritualistic tarot reading. It can just be like try like momentarily getting into the right mindset right. of just like being focused on the cards or focused on your question and then pulling. One. And I think that's what we do on the show a lot where we don't create a sense of ritual before we do the podcast. We yeah. in our moment, like breathe, think of our question directly shuffle, and then pull, seven shuffle times. several times, which we'll get to next. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and then pull cards. We don't do a, a specific, like, you know, salt circle around us sort of ritual right. every time yeah. we read. Exactly. If you do, awesome. Cool. But we're here to say you do not have to. Yes. We're wildly tarot. We are wildly not, tarot. Not, <laughs> not ritually tarot. tarot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but let's get to shuffling because this is also like a really interesting thing is that yeah. everyone has their own method for shuffling. A lot of cards these days are printed on too thick of cardstock to do like a poker riffle shuffle. shuffling. Yeah. 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 Riffle shuffling. Yeah. Which is normally what I prefer. Yes. I love a riffle shuffle, which yep. is just like what you see people in casinos doing. Yeah. Like when you're playing with regular tarot or regular cards. Regular yeah. tarot cards. Regular, regular cards. <laughs> Since so many decks are so sturdy these days, overhand, which is where you have it and you have the whole deck in one hand and then pull small sections out and drop them back on top of the deck usually. Mm-hmm. Um, in the hand that's holding the deck. Yeah. That 
tends to be easier with modern decks that are so thick. Yeah. Some people will lay them out in front of them on the table and sort of like swish them around, kind of mixing them that, that way. That stresses me all the way I, out. I cannot because <laughs> it's it's just like it's too much energy like going out. Like it's, it's wasting my time. Chaos. <laughs> it yeah, so it's much. so much chaos when you're just like and also who has that much space? Is yeah. My other yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but if that works for you, that works for you. That's totally fine. right. The reason that we always want to talk about shuffling is that people get worried about if they're shuffling enough or too much. Yeah. So there, I read some article about like a 52 card deck. If you shuffle it seven times, the entire order is reordered. Yeah. So that's like mathematically or whatever. (laughs) Coincidentally, seven is a number that people are often drawn to. And that is what Esther was already doing just to kind of limit her busy brain from feeling like she needed to shuffle for a thousand years. Yes, yes. Um, I have... um some rituals where it's they're counting related and (laughs) (laughs) and this is one of them because otherwise you know a lot of times people like especially when you're beginning people be like shuffle until you feel it's right and I'm like well is this the feeling what does does that mean the feeling passing me up like what's the feeling I'm supposed to feel like yeah is there like a like a fairy behind me going now now's the time yeah (laughs) exactly or like a little ding right right you're done (laughs) you're done like a microwave Exactly. <laughs> so for me, um, shuffle like usually I will riffle shuffle three, four, five times. I mean, you can hear me in the podcast just shuffling. I'm have our Wiley Tarot deck because ah. it's nice and hand sized, so I can shuffle it really easily. And <laughs> um, and then I will overhand shuffle seven times and then pick the seventh card from the top. And Perfect. I have a tutorial on this in our Patreon as well as I, that was my first one was on Patreon, and then now yeah. now I have one on my Instagram stories so also you can saved. go say, see that to see how I shuffle and some people have adapted it for themselves because they're like oh my gosh finally this problem has been solved for me too because like what does that feel like but yeah yeah all, it's it's like my way is not the only way it's just what feels right for me right and right so, so, like one of our listeners she does it 13 times and oh, so wow. I'm like you know I'm like cool you know do you know I think it's the 13th card from the top is where she starts mm. um and so yeah so for me that just you know, like just do it kind of feels right for you but you know don't feel like you have to be like well what's this feeling you know I'm supposed to stop right at. or I guess if you don't know what that feeling feels like just decide that something is going to be your right. strategy and then stick with it and right. then you'll eventually start feeling like that's the way that you yeah. can do it. Because some people like divide the deck into thirds and then put one some on top of each other. Like there's so many different ways to shuffle cards. You yeah. just have to get there and explore and see which one you're drawn to. Right, right. And if some and sometimes I find that f- feeling a little bit more ritualistic and theatrical helps me. Yeah. And so do that. If you feel like splitting it into thirds and then always pulling from the bottom one last card to whatever you're reading. Yeah. Because it feels more theatrical and ritualistic. (laughs) Do that because that's a totally fine strategy also. Yeah, totally. When you're actually going to read, phrasing questions becomes really important because Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, especially for new readers who are trying to pull cards every single day, people will just say, what's my card for the day? Mm hmm. And when you do that, you're not being very specific in your question. And so sometimes, oh, I guess it's daytime now that Mac has decided to start barking. It's okay. 
The minute that it's a daylight, Mac has to go on sentry duty for our whole entire neighborhood by just laying on the front couch growling at people. Um, anyway, she's an angel. Don't get me wrong. Nathan's getting her. He's growling her. He, did you yeah. see him? Yeah, he came down the stairs. He's like, go, come on, let's go. <laughs> That's so sweet. Thanks, hon. I appreciate it. He's like, you're going to be recording for how many how hours many? tomorrow? Uh, yep. Anyway. Our husbands. So. <laughs> yeah, so supportive and wonderful. Oh, yeah, um, he's carrying her up the stairs. <laughs> is he really? You should know that my dog weighs 80 pounds. Uh, it's no Doogie. Doogie's <laughs> no. like half her size. Yeah. He's like, I my think, 44. He's 80 pounds. Oh, my God. Thanks, hon. Um, that's hilarious. That's also what we have to do when we bathe her, because the minute she realizes oh, that it's, it's her time for a bath, time. she like goes and just like full body like rigid bodies on the couch it's hilarious like somehow she can go yeah exactly <laughs> where she just is like uh, completely unwieldy suddenly you just can't get her under control anyway so phrasing questions the phrasing questions thing when you just yeah. ask for something really general can be helpful in the learning process but if you continue saying what's my card for the day uh-huh. just in that specific wording, it's not always going to be that illuminating because yeah. it could be referring to any point of the day or especially when you get a bad card, especially when you're brand new and you get a bad card when you say, what's my card for the day? You don't know if it's warning you about a tower moment or if yeah. it's just saying this is a card you should be thinking about. Today. Right, right. Like, especially when those negative cards appear for like very minor things, it's like, right. oh my gosh, I'm going to be a car accident today because the tower came and you're like you know so you're terrified to drive your car all day long when it just actually, actually means just, that like your books just fa- are gonna fall over yeah you, you spilled know. your coffee yeah. and something like fell to the ground or yeah. whatever so what when you're first learning saying what's my card for the day is helpful as you're using it every single day i think that this and this sounds so silly but because it, it's such a slight shift changing from what's my card for the day to what is the energy I should be aware of for today? Yeah. Even that change is helpful because then you're not saying, Oh, this is just a concept that I should be thinking about today. Whatever. It's actual energy for your specific day. And it's more illuminating and helpful. Yeah. If you're going through shit and you don't want to know what your general energy is, you can also phrase it as what's something positive I can focus on today and yeah. then pull a card for that. Yeah. You're allowed to do that. It's just as valid as any other way to totally. read to say, tell me something good about my day. Yeah. Or if you're learning to just say, what card should I learn about today? Yeah. And then focus on that card for the whole day. You know, exactly. you don't always like there's this sort of belief or feeling in the community that when you pull cards it's always for like major things where you're wanting to have like life-changing events happen on a daily basis when for us because it is a daily thing that you know either we are involved with or interact with it doesn't need to be like a huge thing As, it could be so casual yeah. and just like oh cool like yesterday my car the day was a four of cups and i put it on my vanity and now it's done okay cool four yeah cups. you know exactly and it's just kind of being just aware of like its presence in my day or what the four of cups could you know like what it's meaning like that i should ponder on you know could feel like but yeah yeah you don't don't feel like you need to have like a life-changing reading every right day. sometimes it's just like benign and minor yeah and that also leads to the idea of larger spreads so there's a lot of like three card spreads out there two card spreads out there that are really great starts but one of the things that i always look for when i'm creating spreads or looking for one to do for myself 
is ending in an action-oriented way. Kind yes. of for similar reasons. It's not that helpful to just get a reading where you're like, okay, now what? Right. So finishing, finding a reading or creating a spread that ends with the action step is a really, really helpful way to utilize tarot in the most effective, or not effective, the most helpful way possible. Right. Like, what are you actually trying to get out of this? Advice, you know? Right. So then you have to then ask for advice as part of your question. Right. Because, like, sometimes you will just get read for filth from your tarot cards. You're like, okay, well, now what do I do with it? Like, right. you've are, you've told me negative things about myself that I need to change. Well, then what's the best way to go about that? To do that. And I even find that with something like a really common three-card spread is mind, body, spirit. Right. Pulling a card to check on my mind. Pulling a card to check on my body. Pulling a card to check on my spirit. That is not quite enough for me. No. And I think that even changing that phrasing from just mind, body, spirit, like a check-in, being like, what can I do to improve my mind? What can I do to improve my body? What can I do to improve my spirit? And having it be action-oriented just in that simple rewording of the question mm -hmm. is helpful. Right. When you're actually pulling cards for a question, you don't need to say it out loud. You mm -hmm. can if you find that helpful. But what I usually do is I just... Like, try to clear my mind as much as possible and just focus on that specific question as I'm pulling a card for that specific question. Yes, yes. Totally. Yeah, and we do that all the time on the podcast. So listen all to a time. few of our episodes when we go through readings and you'll hear us do that frequently. Exactly. And for summer school, all of our readings, which will be on alternating weeks, are going to be using the Celtic Cross Spread, which is a spread that is incredibly popular that yes. was written in the 50s. It was... Well, it's older than that. It's it's like the, I think it was in weights, like little like it was like late 1800s, early 1900s. But it's not as ancient as what people, yeah. you know, claim it is. But people love it. And yes. it is a good spread, but it also is so many positions. So yes. you may feel like you need to be doing Celtic crosses for everything and then listen to our next camp episode and be like, now they're doing a Celtic cross. So what are they talking about? But Celtic crosses are generally unnecessary. Yes. The reason, because they're so long. The reason that we're doing them for camp is because we want people to be able to utilize those episodes to listen to us pairing cards together mm -hmm. and reading uh, one consistent situation over the course of like a half hour. Yes. So that is a case where a Celtic cross feels useful because then you can look at the relationships between cards because that spread is designed to all be interrelational yes. amongst themselves. So that's why we've chosen that. But if you're just going through your everyday situation, you're just like asking about like, a work meeting and you do the Celtic cross, you may get way more information than you mm -hmm. necessarily know what to do with about right. it. So we tend to avoid them altogether. I think I've done like four Celtic crosses ever for yeah. myself. Right. Um, and I, I've liked it every time, mm -hmm. but it is not necessary. Right. At all. It's a lot of times it's uh, too much information. If you're doing it for like smaller situations, it's too much right. information as well as the fact that there's a likelihood that you'll get a lot more messages crossed that aren't yeah. there because of the details and associations that you have. You, it's just so much information. It can be chaotic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you can listen to us do that, but that does lead us to our next point, which is reading card pairs together. 
This is the thing that will take your reading from a intro level to a more intermediate level. And you can start it right off the bat. So Mm -hmm. it is not that you have to learn all of the cards first and then you can start reading them in pairs. If you want to start reading in pairs immediately, you totally can. And I actually think that it's really helpful to do that because you get more nuance out of individual cards if you try to understand them in relationship to other cards. Yes. So rather than saying, what is the energy I should be focusing on today? And let's just pull it for me and we can use this as an example. What's some energy that I need to focus on today? And I am getting the world. That's actually the second time today that that's come up, which is cool. So the world. And then also I'm going to pull a second card. And sometimes people call these clarification cards, but I just like reading in pairs so much that I just think of them as being in pairs rather than it being clarifying. So I got the five of wands and the world. And so reading the five of wands and the world together is interesting because the world is such a positive card generally. Yes. And the five of wands is a little bit more conflicty, but not real conflict, just kind of like annoying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So if that's the energy I need to focus on today, I need to focus on keeping my mind on the big picture instead of on small annoyances because I got the world. So keeping my eye on the big picture, the world is sort of intrinsic in that. But adding that second layer says the vibe that you're going to get today is that there might be small annoyances and you need to ignore them and focus on the world instead. Yeah. Yeah. And so that you can do that with any set of two. So like if you got like the five of pentacles and the 10 of wands, it's like you're feeling broke and you're feeling exhausted. And so that's kind of like the energy that you're feeling is like understanding that you're just kind of over it and tired or Mm -hmm. whatever. And using those two cards together really, really deepens what your understanding of both cards are. And I think it's a really good practice to get into. Obviously. Right. Well, and especially when you think about drawing those bigger, um, major cards i was like those bigger archetype cards now the bigger major cards especially like with the world holly be like completion okay well completion what kind of completion what is right like the further what does this actually mean it gives you like a little like that's just like a little appetizer is a one card it's like a little appetizer but you kind of want to build on that a little bit yeah so it's so drawing at least two i usually don't do more than three or four Because, again, if you get too much information, wires will cross, you know. Learning where you're, where you would like to stop is important. Right. Yes. And in all of our episodes, you hear me always pulling two cards because that's my preference. But you don't have to do that. Exactly. Because if you start pulling too many cards, like too many clarifiers, you start to spiral because you're like, oh, wait, what the fuck is going on here with my relationship? You can kind of lose the plot. Yeah, exactly. The devil, he's cheating on me. I know he is. You know, that's like the 18th card down, you know. Yeah, exactly. Is it still helpful in that case? Yeah. But that kind of leads to our next point, which is using the cards for storytelling. And the point of that is so that rather than seeing each cards as individual elements, working towards learning how to interconnect them all with each other is really really key in getting the most out of a tarot reading Mm -hmm. because these things are not standing alone if I'm looking at two separate vibes for the day and seeing the world and the five of wands then I'm seeing this sort of like focus on the larger picture and accomplishment and all of that and then also conflict if you see those as two separate things and you're like oh well I guess I'm gonna have conflict today fantastic Uh then it's not quite as helpful in going through your actual day than reading them together and saying like here these two things combined mean when there's conflict focus on the big picture. And so it's sort of more of like a storytelling aspect, or if you're doing 
multiple cards, it kind of goes back to that idea of ending with an action step. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a long reading, telling the story of somebody, you know, leaving a job and telling their boss that they're leaving and how that'll go, that's the storytelling aspect of it because you're trying to get not just how this might go, but like how this might feel, how you can make it better. So all of those like who, what, when, where, and how questions that you are taught as a kid, journalist asks, Uh or journalist asks, (laughs) (laughs) that is something you should also be doing when you're thinking about doing a tarot reading, especially for somebody else, because it's not enough to just say, here's what's going on. You also need like who can help you, what you're specifically supposed to be doing, how you're supposed to do it, when you're supposed to do it, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that stuff. So using those storytelling tools really helps with giving a good reading. Yeah. And our lives are stories. Like when you interact with yourself and pulling cards, you're wanting, you know, information about your own story on how to develop your own story or, you know, to, to enlighten certain things. When you're doing readings for other people, you're wanting these archetypes to impact their own story and their own life. So figuring out how to narratively, you know, communicate that will make things much easier for you as you practice and learn tarot. Absolutely. Absolutely. So important. And yeah. that's kind of it for the reading, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think Do you have so. Anything else you want to say about the tarot readings? I think close, like sometimes with readings, as I think we had with a recent question, sometimes negative things will happen. Yeah. And so I think this kind of goes into our next thing about ethics. It's sort of up to you ethically what to communicate and how to communicate. Because, you know, sometimes like negative things will happen. And we as the reader have to decide, especially if we're reading for somebody else, ethically, if we want to tell another person something that we discover or see. And so I think just kind of, you know, understanding your boundaries from the get go and knowing that you are the person that is giving this reading and being comfortable in that and the driver you're like you're in the driver's seat as exactly yeah so you know it's up to you to feel like if you should share information or not if that makes sense yeah totally but it's sort of to me it's almost like a like a do no harm sort of feeling like you don't want to like I don't want to say like don't tell someone that's you know something bad may happen, but more of like don't tell someone that they're a bitch because the cards are saying they're a bitch. Like, well, or <laughs> even sense. like if if something bad is gonna happen, and we do this all the time. If you've listened to us do readings before, it's like something bad is gonna happen, or this is less good than we'd hope for it to be. So let's right. also come up with like a supportive pep talk or something. Yeah, which is just like a more helpful way to end it. And I think that that's kind of what we mean by like right. Or for the next section on our outline, Esther is like closing a reading, you want to close the reading with something to do. Yes. Either a pep talk or an action item or whatever, something where it feels like, okay, this is great. We, I have something to do now. Right. And then for yourself as a reader, if you're just reading for yourself, I always find this is so silly because it kind of is a little bit like Harry Potter ish, but (laughs) I like to, after a reading, just drink some water. Yeah. Settle back into your body. Like, not that I'm exiting my body while I'm doing reading, but just like rather than being so cerebral, kind of mm-hmm. like try to get back into your more calm headspace, drink some water, eat something. Yeah. Yeah. Because and- it's exhausting. Like, especially if you begin to do it for a, quite a few people, like, you know, yeah. three or four people in a day's time, you know, it's. I mean, even after one person, it'd be very exhausting. So you have to take even care just of yourself. yourself. Yeah. yeah, even just yourself. Like you're putting your 
mind through something by like asking yourself questions and then having to receive answers to them. So being like kind to yourself and like, you know, journaling or drinking water or whatever is always helpful at the end of a reading. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. And then other ethics. I mean, uh, the ethics of tarot reading are complex because some people feel so strongly about specific things. Yes. And some people think that they don't matter at all. The only ethical, not, this is probably not true. The ethical <laughs> thing that comes to mind as being the one that I feel the most consistently strong about is pirated decks. Okay. Yeah. Which is not really a tarot reading ethics. It's more of just a tarot ethics in general. Like do not buy tarot decks from questionable sources. If something looks like it costs like $10, like for, oh my God, what a deal. How on earth is that possible? It is likely just taking money directly out of creators' uh-huh. pockets. Right. So that's the one that I feel the most strongly about. Other ethical issues that people bring up with tarot is reading on behalf of somebody else. I do it all the time. I do that all the time. <laughs> I know. I think that, so this is where my line for that is. What people yeah. say, what people mean when they say reading for somebody else is if you're doing a reading and let's say like, I don't even know what a good example would be, but let's say somebody comes to you and says, is my boyfriend cheating on me? Uh, and you say, oh, I don't do third party readings because you don't want to read for the boyfriend. Right. But that's not really what the question is. What they're actually no. asking is, am I safe in this relationship? Yes. So you would still be able to find a way to read for them for that question without trying to like read for this other individual that you are right. not meeting with. Right. So you can still find ways to get there. Even more crucially though, is that if people are asking like, when will he leave his wife? Uh huh. That sort of question when it's timing and about two people that you're not in face to face with. Right. There's basically no way that you as a reader could successfully answer that question because there's so many unknowns and nothing is really set in stone, right. especially timing decisions for people who are unrelated to the person who's sitting in front of you because right. it's all of these decisions that strangers are making. Yes. So I understand why people are resistant to third party readings, especially if you're being paid to do that reading. Uh-huh. But if you're just reading for yourself and you're yes. like, you know, how is this person feeling about me? That's, a different story because uh-huh. you can read for yourself about how somebody is feeling about you way more successfully uh, than you could read for a stranger about how somebody is feeling about them where there's like all of these sort of degrees of separation. Yeah. And I think also like you alluded to, it's the reformulation of the question where they're not really wanting to know that specific piece of information. They want to know, but yeah. like the deeper issue, there's a deeper issue going on. And right. you as the reader, for yourself typically and others it's better to kind of like whittle down to like that what you that the actual, actual issue is, yeah. you know the actual issue and so i think that you know just like holly said reframing the question from this like oh well is this da 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 da, da well I could, we could talk about it, but it seems like that there's something else going on here. Let's talk about that yeah, first. Let's talk about you first and yeah. then we can move on. Yeah. yeah. It's totally and let's, true. Yeah. Let's talk about you first and see what comes up and if this situation, ha- you know, comes up and is involved, you know? Yeah. So I know other totally. people also have ethical issues with, you know, using cannabis or drinking a little wine with drawing cards. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never had an ethical problem myself, obviously, you know, like obviously, um, but if there is, if you know, if 
the person you're meeting with or if you're giving a reading to someone who's sober definitely be respectful of their boundary yeah you know yeah so <laughs> i that, i think that's kind of what i would say about that there's like a long history of people reading tarot and bars for strangers and i think that that's great and totally fine yeah but if you are somebody who feels less in control or less connected with their guides or less connected with the cards or however you see tarot reading when you've been consuming substances, then doing that is not a good call because yeah. you know it's going to be a less effective reading. Yeah. If you're somebody who feels like being a little bit high or having had a glass of wine doesn't impact it or makes you more open to receiving the messages from the cards, then you can do that too. Yeah. I don't think that there's as simple of a yay or nay as some people would like there to be. I just hear yeah. our friend Claire in the background <laughs> being like, you're wrong. <laughs> but I she's know. a teetotaler. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's her true. own thing. Right. But right. that's the thing is that if you, then if you know that you're reading for somebody who is a teetotaler, yeah. then make sure that you're respecting their boundaries. Right. But if it's just for yourself and you don't think it's impacting it, there's no reason that that can't be a valuable reading still. Yeah, totally. And then I think there's like the other ethics that come to mind are like health readings and financial readings. Yeah. That's up to you. Um, I don't read for either of those because those aren't my wheelhouse. I really don't care. Especially not for other people. <laughs> yeah. But you did read for me the other day when I was like, I feel nauseous inexplicably. Uh, and you I was did like, reading I about did. whether or not I was pregnant. I was like, is she pregnant? And two court cards. I'm like, these aren't like the baby court cards. So I think no. you're okay. And sure enough. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's like there's a uh, trust that has to be built when you're doing yeah. readings about intense things. And I think that that's actually maybe a really, this isn't even one of the things we are going to talk about, but uh-huh. there are tarot readers who are scammy. Yes. Who do want to convince you that there's something wrong and they're the only ones who can fix it. Right. And that often comes into play with health readings or money related readings, because those are the things that we care about so right. much. Yeah. And if somebody says, oh, you've been cursed or there's a dark entity around you and we need to do a ritual to remove that and you don't know them. It's mm-hmm. almost invariably just because they know that they can get more money out of you because yes. you're scared because you care the most about those things. Yeah. So if you go to a professional reading who is saying, oh, I'll totally do a health reading and oh my God, you have something really scary and dark happening with right. you, then give that a second thought and maybe get a second opinion. And, and I mean, just going to go straight into it. The twin flame readings too. I mean, they will oh, yeah. keep you coming back to them to find your perfect love of your life and you just keep giving them money and it's not working out for you like yeah be discerning whenever you're picking a reader yeah exactly and if you're reading for yourself just remind yourself that you have the control in this situation yes and even if you go to other people for insight about what they think your cards mean you're still the one who pulled them and you're still the one who understands it the most so that's one of the reasons why some facebook groups can be so dangerous to me like reading help facebook groups yeah because sometimes they will have people in there who are like oh well i'm seeing a generational curse yeah whatever yeah yeah, like are you it's like margie are you sure like yeah Yeah, (laughs) a generational curse. Okay, from the two of cups, really? Okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, but I do think that that brings us to a good thing to pitch our Facebook group or our Discord server, where there are a lot of people who are like trustworthy and would love to help interpret your cards with you. Totally. Yep. And I mean, we have a if you're new to tarot and meanings are a bit slippery still. Like we have a tarot deck that has meanings on them with 
associations that will, you know, that may be able to help you with, you know, picking things up a little bit faster or even just like being able to feel more confident. Yeah, Yeah, definitely feel more confident. Yeah. We designed it, the Wildly Tarot deck, as a tool to help you build your tarot confidence. Yes, yes. Um, And that's available on our website. Yep. So there we go. Episode one of our tarot summer camp. Woo woo. Intro to tarot. Wildly summer camp intro to tarot. And (laughs) that's our show. Yeah. So I don't have our outro. outro. Oh, but you can find, I mean, I guess we can just say you can find uh, uh, all of our stuff, information, contact information, our deck, et cetera, at wildlytarot.com. And we have a really active Facebook group and our Instagram has people who are connecting too. But I think that Facebook and Discord are probably best for like intro to tarot help. Yes. Um, And now you can definitely buy your certification from our Red Bubble (laughs) shop because you've listened to our whole intro to tarot episode. You're an expert. Exactly. Exactly. Should we take this time to say don't, you don't have to be certified to be a good tarot reader? Yes. That's the entire point of our certification is that it's a joke about how certifications for tarot are not a regulated thing. It no. doesn't really mean anything. It's, it's from just a that you feel more confident. Yeah, it's from exactly. a self-governing body that nominates themselves as the kings and queens and not even and a body. Tarot. It's just individuals who yeah. say, I am certifying people now. So yeah. if you have a tarot certification, if that makes you feel stronger and more capable, all like if you need a, go like, for it. If you need a class structure to be able to help you study, that totally understand that. But you don't yeah. need it to be a good tarot reader right. at all. And if you you would like one without putting in the <laughs> 2000 hours hours <laughs> then you can go to our red bubble shop which we'll link in our show notes and just get yourself a mug or yeah. an actual certification totally yep and everything else is in our show notes so look in our show notes for all the information and the c- citations and resources for this episode yeah exactly and also uh there's a section on our website that has links to our favorite tarot books and decks yeah. for intro reasons uh, so that would be helpful. And then also our bookshop.org front page, which is also linked on our website, has all of the decks and books that we've reviewed in the past. So if you want to explore those for more suggestions, you can totally go for it. Totally. Oh, and one other thing that I think would be helpful to mention. Oh, yeah. If you want to hear us talk about the Major Arcana cards card by card, you can go to our Patreon and that information is up for everybody. Even if you're not a Patreon supporter, you can still access all of our mini episodes about the major arcana through our Patreon. Yes, totally. Uh, So check those out there. Yeah. And I think that's it. Go forth and tarot wildly, baby. We love you. (laughs) We love you. (laughs) Happy camp. Happy camp.